Welcome to Eggshell Transformations, a podcast for intense people. My name is Imi, and I'm here with you on a journey. Hey everyone, I'm really excited to share with you today's episode. We're talking to Jennifer, the founder of the community Intergifted. We will talk about a wide variety of topics concerning giftedness. For example, we will address why all resources for giftedness are for children, well, mostly, and what can gifted adults do? What is gifted trauma? What are some of the classic family roles gifted people end up playing in their families? Different ways of being gifted and why IQ isn't everything. The family roles gifted female and sensitive men tend to take on in their families. How can a gifted person find safety in the social world and in the community? How to balance being you and being safe in groups? And finally, Jennifer's advice on gifted trauma. I've also got a full transcript on the website, so feel free to have a look. Now to Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to uh, join in this conversation with you. Absolutely. I mean, I've been aware of your work, obviously, for a long time. And finally, I reached out. So it's really good to finally get to talk to you. Same. So to start with, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, about your own journey, and obviously the community that you have created? Yeah, so for anybody who's listening or watching who doesn't know about me, um, my name is Jennifer and I... Uh, my name is Jennifer and I'm a gifted adult. Uh, I, um, gifted I rediscovered anonymous. Gifted anonymous, exactly. I rediscovered my giftedness in my late 20s. And um, that was a huge turning point for me because I was one of those identified gifted kids mm. who, you know, left school after getting some um, gifted specific education and left, left school and then nobody ever talked about it again. So you so were I, identified as a child, but then no one ever addressed it. Yeah, I mean, I got gifted education. Wow. Yeah, but it was it was just um, after I left, you know, school. Nobody talked about giftedness again. So I think there's a myth, you know, and I've seen it with lots of other people. There's kind of this myth that gifted kids grow up and the other kids catch up, and everybody's just kind of the same um, Mm. in adulthood. There's those few geniuses out there, geniuses um, who don't need any help because they're so smart that they're going to do amazing things and they're going to cure cancer and they're going to take us to the moon and all of those things. And, um, and, but they don't need anything special because they're obviously so smart that they're not going to have any problems. So I can't tell I if you're up- being sarcastic or genuine. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the, that's the classic, you know, myth that people have. And obviously, they yeah. They're with. gifted. What help would they need? Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm. So then gifted people who, um, you know, or let's say the average gifted adult maybe just thinks, oh, well, that was just a kid, a kid thing. That was just a thing of my childhood. Um, or they didn't, or maybe they were never identified. And so they still don't think anything of it. They don't think that they're gifted and yeah, they just yeah. don't know what's going on with them. So I rediscovered it in my twenties, in my late twenties. And then I realized that I needed to work with, um, with gifted people in my career, you know, as a psychologist and coach. And so then I switched over and then that led me, you know, step-by-step to creating the community that I created for gifted adults, because Mm. I just realized that, you know, um, 
everything out there was on gifted kids, gifted education. Yes. yes. And Thank I was you. desperate, I desperate for resources. Absolutely. Like, I needed to know why, why were, why was I so different and what did that mean for my needs? Like, how did, yeah. what did I need to do? of myself and have a decent life yes thank god that you created that because there were so few resources out there when you search gifted it's just all for children and yeah yeah, i i hear you yeah yeah so i've talked about it a lot i've talked about my story a lot like on other podcasts so if people are wanting to kind of go into more detail and hear more about exactly how I went how I rediscovered my giftedness and you know all of that. They can they can go to the Unleash Monday podcast or um embracing intensity or uh the positive disintegration podcast. There's a bunch about them out there that where I've shared my story in more detail. So sure, you know, I will make you repeat then. And since yeah. we've just dived in for our audience, can you just define giftedness? I want your definition, I don't want the Wikipedia definition. And yeah. do it succinctly. Like how would you define it? Um, you know, if I'm just telling some person on the street, they're asking, what do I do for a job? And I say, I'm a psychologist. And they say, um, you know, what, who do you work with? And I say, a gifted adult. And they say, well, what is a gifted adult? Then I'll say a person with a high IQ. But really, you know, that's my two second definition, just for somebody who doesn't really have a context for understanding what giftedness is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I'm talking about it with somebody who does have a little bit more context or do, does want to know really more about the nuances of giftedness, um, then I will go into more detail and I'll talk about the complexity of giftedness. So you have you know higher than average complexity of thought, and um, that can be in various areas. So usually I'm talking about intellectual giftedness and that's higher than complexity, higher than average complexity of thought. Um, But if you're talking about emotional giftedness, a lot of times that's higher than average complexity of feeling. Yes. Or if you're talking about central giftedness, it's higher than average complexity of sensuality, central awareness um, and existential. There's the existential area and there's the creative area. And so you have the higher levels of complexity in these different areas. And um, they can show up in, you know, one way, like you can have the higher than average complexity of intellectual thought, but not really be high, you know, have high emotional complexity or or other forms of um, giftedness, or you can have them all together or some combination. And uh, so then when I'm explaining it to people, I'm like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a complex phenomenon, a phenomenon of a phenomenon of complexity, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. So succinctly, just basically complexity of various Mm -hmm. aspects of our functioning. Question, can someone not have high IQ, but be gifted and have all these complexities, you think? Yeah, I mean, IQ scoring is meant to measure some logical, mathematical intelligences. Um, And so, and, you know, some verbal, there's, depends on the test that you're taking, but uh, it's it's limited in what it's measuring. So mm. what it's measuring is something interesting and it does have to do with intelligence and complexity, but it's not the full picture of what complexity mm. is, what what kinds of complexities can exist in the human mind and the human self. So um, so it's it's good for what it is, but it doesn't tell the whole picture. So if a person gets an IQ score that's uh, above average um, into the gifted range, then, you know, they can probably assume that they're gifted, but that doesn't really tell them in which ways they're gifted or um, doesn't say anything about emotional giftedness or physical giftedness or existential giftedness. 
I have really said because a lot of people do identify with the intensities and the overexcitabilities are the other definitions, but then they mm. don't want to go through an IQ test because that would make them feel like such an imposter. Yeah, I know a lot of people struggle with the IQ testing mm. in general, mm. and I understand it. I mean, it's. I mean, what would you recommend a grown-up do? Do they go to Mensa? Do they it depends. find a psychologist? I mean, you mean to 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 look at whether they're gifted? Yeah, I think people have this funny relationship. It's a bit like mental health diagnosis. It's like you want the validation. You so want to have a label to and, and feel validated for all that you've experienced all your life. But then it's scary as well. Like, what if they say, I don't have this thing? What if I'm... And especially with giftedness, right? It, with mental health diagnosis, it's different. But with giftedness, it's almost like, oh, I'm being so arrogant that I want to be diagnosed with giftedness and then it turns out I'm not how embarrassing it would be mm-hmm. yeah and with IQ testing I mean you can have a bad day you can have also you can have um things like dyslexia or autism or things that make it challenging to sit and do that test in the way that it's intended absolutely and so that's all you know there even if you say okay I will do it you may have reasons that it's not going to show a score that's that's really commensurate with your level of complexity. So it's challenging. I mean, I think it's a challenging thing for people to even think about. Um, but some people love it. They go, they do their tests, they have fun with it. So it's not, you know, not everybody's scared of it. Some people enjoy it and they get their score and they're happy. But um, I do think it's important for people to keep in mind that it's not the only way to identify giftedness. And so if they're wanting to identify giftedness in another way, that's great. And that sometimes it's a faulty way of identifying giftedness, because if you have other reasons that would make you, it would skew your score in a negative direction, um, it would not adequately represent what's in your brain, then, um, then yeah, that's going to be disappointing and confusing. And so in that sense, it can be in, inaccurate, I guess is the best way to say it. So I recommend that people, first of all, um, just like with mental health questions, you know, you look at the, you look at the, um, the literature on it and does it match your lived experience? You know, you look at the symptoms or you look at the outcomes or you look at the the challenges that it, it offers or the opportunities that it offers and do they match? Do they match what you've lived through? And I often tell people it's important to think about it as a lifelong phenomenon. Mm. You know, does it does it match your life as you've lived it throughout your life? And not just today, how you're feeling today, because sometimes people, you know, sometimes you're in a positive mood and you have like a lot of energy and you're like, oh yeah, all those things match me today, but they haven't matched me throughout my life. And so then it's hard to say that it's a, a really an innate thing and it's more circumstantial, you know? Um, so starting there, but, and we'll probably talk about this a bit, but, you know, people can have trauma around their giftedness yeah. where they've been masking oh, and hiding. Oh, that's exactly what I want to talk about. Yeah. So if they have been masking and hiding, it may be really difficult for them. They might even get triggered just looking at the list of, you know, gifted qualities, Um like you said, maybe somebody starts to tell themselves, well, I'm just arrogant. I I can't even think of myself as this. Uh, how dare I want to think I'm special and so on and so forth. Very and common, yes. in those cases, then it becomes really difficult to self-identify. Mm. And sometimes also these lists, you know, I struggle. This is why I, I created this, this more holistic look at giftedness um, because I struggle sometimes with these lists. And you know this with mental health 
stuff too. Like you can read the DSM and, you know, uh, you read about an anxiety disorder and well, we're all, I'm, I'm like that sometimes too. And so what it's hard for me to know in my head, at what point does it become a, you know, qualifiable disorder? If you believe in DSM diagnoses, for example, mm-hmm. um, and the same thing with giftedness, it's like, even me, I, when I was looking at the, the the qualities of giftedness, I was thinking, yeah, but how do I know that I'm so much more complex than other people? I mean, like maybe they're complex inside their head and they're just not telling me, you know, how do I know? That voice is so salient in so many gifted people I talk to. Yeah, exactly. So then in those cases, need to scrutinize everything. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when it comes to positive things about oneself. Yeah. And a lot of people just think, I mean, we project what's in our mind onto other people. And so we think that, well, of course they have to be noticing these things. Of course they have to be thinking these things. Mm. They're not saying it, but I know that they know. And that's a, that's a big part of the surprise for a lot of people when they realize they're gifted and they they Mm. go, Oh, so other people really are not thinking these things. They really don't have this in mind. They really are not um, able to see the, all of these different connections and, or feel all of these different things or have all of these different complex emotions. Oh my God, I have been treating the world as though it operates like me. And no wonder I've been having so many problems related to that. Mm-hmm. So that's where like professional support can come in in terms of doing an assessment. Because when like when I do assessments for people, and I'm able to say to them, I'm sorry? Giftedness assessment. Yeah, a giftedness assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm able to say to them, you know, listen, I've worked with like lots and lots and lots of people. Um, and I can tell you that your mind is qualitatively different than Mm. a person who's not gifted. And Mm. I'll hear, I can tell you why. And then, then the person starts to go, Oh, okay. Mm. So there is a difference. And what I've been projecting out is not true. It's just what I assumed that other people could do because I mean, that's how our brains, that's how, that's how our brains work. You know, Mm. they project out into the world and expect to see something and, even sometimes in the um, in the absence of evidence of that other thing, we mm. still just persist in thinking that that that's the way that it is because that's what having a mind feels like to us, you know. I can't wait to jump into the topic of gifted trauma because we seem to yeah, do a natural. Yes, but before that, I have one cu- one curious question, maybe even just for myself. What makes you transition from being a psychologist to being a coach? As soon as I started training as a psychologist, I was, you know, I appreciated my, my, my professors and stuff, but God, I was just like, what, what is this? What is this field? It's like, so not curious. <laughs> I mean, this is the feeling that I had, you know, um, because of the way that my mind works. I just had so many questions that went far, far beyond what my professors were even willing to entertain. And so I got um, very interested in the fringes of psychology very quickly. Um, I started studying like William Glasser and choice theory and these kinds of, you know, um, uh, rational emotive behavior therapy. I loved Albert Ellis. I thought he was like a superstar, you know, in my, in my mind, the way he worked, he was very sort of out there on the edges. And, um, and I just realized I need to go faster. I cannot just sit and talk about the same problems session mm-hmm. after session. I mean, I, I, I started in, th- you know, 
being a therapist. And I just mm. felt like, come on, let's get there faster. Mm. So I realized that um, coaching would be probably mm. a better way for me to work. And also um, without, when I, I trained in the, like right, right around 2000, yeah. uh, 2001 to 2003, I think is when I was, I was in graduate school. And um, I just, yeah, back then there was really no talk about trauma. Um, so I could see that there were these really like deeper issues and they weren't really directly addressed in a way that I felt would really lead to like serious change and transformation in people's lives. I mean, sometimes yes, but on the whole, there was structurally something missing and I could see and feel that something was missing and I didn't know how to name it um, or, or what to call it because people were not talking about trauma back then, except if it was like war trauma or something like that. So um, I think if I trained now, I may enjoy it in being a therapist more, uh, like the, the the classic therapeutic yeah. trajectory, uh, because trauma is in there. But it's named, you know, now it's named. But back then, that was not the case. So I kind of went the other direction and went into a more positive psychology approach, even though positive psychology was brand new at that time. And I didn't even know the words, Um, but I went more into that approach, talking about human thriving and, you know, what makes a good life and then building up toward that. And now it's only been, you know, this last decade that now that I've learned all that there is about trauma and embodiment and all of that, that I'm like, Oh, it's nice to be able to put these things together finally, <laughs> you know, because I could feel that lack, but I didn't know how to name it back then. I didn't have the resources well, to. Thank God know. that you follow your dissatisfaction. You follow your path based on how you feel. I think that's yeah. very, very powerful. And not everyone can honor how they feel. Like you follow your dissatisfaction in a way. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. And my curiosity, because I, I don't do well keeping that in a box. So I. Yeah. I mean, when I was studying, I was always, like I said, pushing toward the edges of of wherever I was studying and then um, eventually just kind of moving out from there. So yeah, I studied to become a coach right away as soon as I graduated uh, with my with my psychology degree. And then I started studying to become a coach and yeah, blended them throughout so, the years. Thank yeah. you. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. And I love that you created your own thing and you do things in your own unique way rather than doing the conventional model. And you did That's so what I've appreciated about your work. Well. <sighs> thank you. Yes, I'm also transitioning away from the traditional therapy model. And so I no longer do, well, mostly no longer do therapy. Give mm. the trauma. Give mm, the trauma. So, okay, so, you know. Yes, go for it. Trauma is a wound, right? Like the Greek word for trauma is wound. And uh, when you think about trauma, what it does, it is, I mean, if we don't have the resources to heal the wound, if somebody's not there to help us heal the wound right away, then that wound stays either open or it gets scarred over with, you know, hard, rigid constructs. Mm -hmm. And that separates us from some part of ourselves. And so there's a fragmentation. And when it comes to giftedness, then you can have gifted parts of the self that ha- have gotten wounded. And that wound is still either open or it has scarred over with hard constructions and, and has become rigid. So when you see people, when you see gifted people um, who have had their giftedness completely ignored, they they, have, they didn't know that it was there. 
um, they've been living with inaccurate self-knowledge for their entire lives uh, about how they work, about how the world works, about what to expect from other people, about where they belong. That's really difficult, right? Like that's a wound to the self that needs healing. Um, sometimes it's more like overt and people have bullied them, people have insulted them, or people have exploited their intelligence, their giftedness. Um, sometimes in family roles, it can be like, I mean, a gifted person can play any family role, but they can end up, for example, playing like a caretaker type role. Um, and then using their gifts for taking care of everybody else's, just like the family's dysfunction. And that's, I mean, that can be really traumatic, what right? Like, that is a common family role that they ended up taking on. It's like the drama of the gifted child, that book. I would say a lot of times it's honestly the gifted gifted females that end up gifted in the females. caretaker or more sensitive you know, men or like it's, it's, it's whoever's the kind of the, the taking on the more feminine aspects, um, then they end up, yeah, there's, they're, they're quite highly sensitive typically. And then they will take on those caretaking roles. And, um, especially I say, especially women, because, you know, girl, as girls, we're socialized yeah. often to be the caretakers and to make sure, you know, we're not hurting daddy's ego and, uh, then you know the the whole sort of caretaking falls to us. But I see um, I see gifted people playing all kinds of family roles. So it's not just the, the caretaker type roles. Um, yeah, there's always you know the 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 hero role, for example, or the golden child, the one who's good at everything and you know never disappoints. Um, and to a degree, all of the roles are a caretaking role. It's always interesting because even the scapegoat, for example, is is a caretaking role. When you look at the way that it gives the family uh, an excuse and someone to blame for all of the family's issues. And so nobody has to actually face their problems. And so it's a sort of a codependent type caretaking role um, where one person becomes the problem child. Um, yeah. Oof, that's already yeah. so much. How yeah, are they, it is. Are they usually aware of their trauma, or do they usually downplay it? And why? I would say most people downplay it, mm. and I would say, I mean, in my experience, we downplay it because we don't have a context to heal it yet. So mm. it's like you know, when you're in a place, I was. Yeah, it, it brings to mind, you know, when you're in a place where it would be, if you would cry about something that you're sad about, and people would um, either ignore you or um, bully you or, you know, somehow make fun of you or somehow make it worse, they would like take pleasure maybe in your crying and in your in your grief or something, in your pain, you just hide it away. That's not a safe place to put that out there, right? And so similarly with gifted stuff, with gifted traumas, if we are in a room of people who don't understand anything about giftedness, who um, maybe are going to tell us that gifted needs are just something that we've invented to feel special or something like that. Uh, ouch, ouch. Yeah, right? Like, I'm not going to bring it up there. Yeah. And this points to why a lot of people in therapy or coaching with a non-gifted therapist or a, a yes, therapist... Yes, I want to ask you about that. Can people get hurt in conventional yes. non-gifted specific and if so can you be more specific about some of the potential things that can like exchange things that could be said or things that are not said or not recognized 
Well, I mean, first of all, just having therapy that doesn't include your giftedness, you know, that doesn't actually explicitly talk about it, that can be very difficult. Um, but a lot of clients come in defensive of their giftedness anyway. They're keeping it yeah. hidden. Um, and sometimes, and I and I wrote an article about this that we can link to. I just recently wrote an article that talks about some of the ways this shows up concretely in therapy okay. when um, clients either hide their giftedness or sometimes they'll use their giftedness as a defense mechanism for engaging in. That is in so. Therapy. Let no. me guess: rationalization and intellectualization. Yeah, and sometimes arrogance. I mean, yeah. I, I like to think of you know. I, I would like to think of all gifted people as being like humble and stuff, but that's absolutely not true. Um, so you do have people, gifted people who that's how they manifest their, their trauma reactions mm. is through, like I talked about the scarring and you can have these hard constructs that are like, I'm better than everybody. That's the way that I deal with it. I'm impatient. I'm condescending. I'm, you know, all of these ways of showing other people that I'm better than them mm. so like one just example comes to mind of a client that went to his therapist and um she had you know like lots of books around and he said have you read all of these books and right away that was like the first thing that he said to her and i'm like well I mean, what did you expect her how did you expect her to respond so it can be the client that comes in really defensive mm. but um from the therapist side uh it can be there can be a lot of defense against the idea of giftedness yeah. anyway um um, it, it can make a, a therapist, let's say a non-gifted therapist, it can make them feel overwhelmed, just simply. Mm. It's it's a lot of cognitive complexity that comes out or yeah. emotional complexity, like yeah. I said, or existential yeah. or whatever. And um, it can be really overwhelming. Mm. If you have giftedness plus overexcitabilities, if there's like the complexity and then the intensity of the overexcitabilities, I mean, I get it. Sometimes I, I, I have to say for the therapist's uh, but when coaches. you are also gifted, you actually really enjoy these clients because it's like, bang, yeah, bang, bang. it's so exciting. It's so great. Right. Mm. But when you're not, when you're, if you're a non-gifted therapist or you don't have overexcitability, that can feel really overwhelming. Okay. So I feel for the therapist as well, but at mm. the same time, it's always this question of how it's dealt with in therapy. So if it's named and recognized and mm. honored and, you know, yeah, brought but into how the can the clients name it if they don't know it, right? I know. That's why it's, it's this whole crazy, vicious circle. Yes. So yes, a I lot of you. times we're scared to, we're scared to show it. We would need to show it in order for it to be named. Mm -hmm. um, but until recently, pe most people didn't have any names for this. And even still, I mean, it's, I always tell people that I'm working with therapists and clients. I always just tell everybody, this is a very new field. Like understanding adult giftedness is very, very new. It's still just like a baby. Or sometimes I say it's like we're in the wild west. We're still sort of figuring it out. So it's normal that there's confusion about it, that people don't know yet, that, you know. Please make more noise, please. I know, I'm trying. <laughs> I, know, yeah, I know you're offering training and things, which I really appreciate. But in, in all the trainings, I'm always telling everybody, please take a leadership role, speak out, advocate, you know. Just do, out of curiosity do. and as a detour, what kind of people do you attract into your training? Um, well, they're all therapists, coaches, psychologists. Do they usually identify as gifted or they just feel overwhelmed yeah. they want to know more? They yeah, they're um they identify as gifted because it's part of the it's a requirement for training. Oh, is it? Ah, mm -hmm. so you don't train non-gifted therapists to learn about giftedness then? 
I have at times, but it's difficult. And, and, you know, this makes sense with everything that we're talking about. It's mm-hmm. actually difficult to have a, a mixed group because what's happening in my trainings yeah. is that the, the gifted therapists and, and coaches are actually usually going through their own first sort of self-discovery process mm-hmm. while they're training. So that my trainings are kind of combined professional and personal development the the main focus is on the professional development but in order for a I mean from my perspective in order for a therapist or a coach a gifted therapist or coach to be ready to work with their gifted clients they have to go through their own giftedness integration themselves because any parts of themselves that are hiding out camouflaging masking um you know dealing dealing with rigidity or or chaos due to unhealed gifted traumas those parts are going to show up in their relationship with their client and they're going to, you know, somehow find a way to avoid or reject the parts of the client that trigger the un- unhealed oh, and gosh. unintegrated parts in themselves. Mm-hmm. So they have to go through it themselves. So that's part of the training. Good. And when I have a mix, um, I've, I, in the past, I've sometimes accepted one or two non-gifted uh, therapists or, or coaches and, you know, they, they, they tag along, but it's, it's a struggle because they're not going through that process. And so they're just watching, you know, everybody else and going, Oh, uh, that's interesting to see. And it's actually good for them, you know, uh, professionally. It would be, but I can understand that disconnect and how they can get annoyed with each other. Yeah. And for the gifted people, it's hard because they're revealing these, uh, you know, these. It has to be things. a safe space. Then. Oh, safe I would space. imagine it to be a very hard place for you to like, Hold hard space to hold. It's like intense group therapy with a diverse group. <laughs> I know it's not therapy, but the dynamic of it could be as complex. I wonder. Yeah, at times it's it, it can become quite um quite charged. Mm. Um, but the 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 way that it's structured minimizes that kind of thing. And the only times that it's really been overwhelming has been when somebody joins and they're really not able to. I would say their gifted trauma is deep enough that they're really not able to face it. And so they're, you know, reacting in defensive ways. And in those cases, I, I, you know, I just tell them, I think it's better that you wait and participate, do some therapy on your own, get some individualized support, and then come back to the group um, in the future. Yeah. Now, I know this is not a diagnosis, but I'm going to use the word symptom. What are some of the symptoms of gifted diagnosis? All right. Well, Sorry, gifted, I sorry, so gifted trauma. Yeah. Not that uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of, when you think of gifted trauma there, I, I, I think of, like I said, the more sort of passive things like, um, like emotional neglect or neglect of the gifted self. Mm. Um, so there's the kind of things that we're missing. And mm. then um, there's the more active kind that's like abuse related to giftedness, like obvious abuse or, um, or, or like a bullying or um, exploitation of the gifted self. And mm. so those two things show up differently. Is it usually um, by their families or usually in the world? By the school system, it can system. be at the workplace. I mean, anywhere where there's other people who might be triggered by their giftedness, mm. you know, mm. um, and anywhere there's like societal norms against that next level of complexity yes which i would assume is everywhere yeah pretty Mm. much yeah so it can be anywhere so how does it affect Um, a person do they end up with slow self-esteem do they feel like unable to express feeling i mean 
probably there, maybe there's no answer to this because there's no standardized answer, but what are some of the patterns you see again and again in someone with gifted, like, what do you see and you go, mm, that's classic gifted trauma? Yeah. Well, there's, like I said, these two areas. So when I see the, the maybe lack trauma, it's like um, an inability to know what one needs, an inability mm. to know what, uh, like what is my what is my unique self and how can I express it? Um, an inability to feel hope about expressing one's giftedness. Like if I speak up, nobody's going to listen to me anyway, or my ideas are always rejected, or um, my ideas are always stupid, or who dare who who am I to dare think that I should deserve any attention or this kind of thing? So this can show up in in this sort of really lack of connection with one's unique self and one's unique potential and the hope of being able to do something with that potential. Um, so there's attachment issues that obviously come with that kind of, uh, that kind of profile. You can have like existential depression, existential kind of an ongoing existential crisis that can, it can show up in like physical issues. So chronic illnesses, um, um, and then on the other side, you can, you see sort of like this more when somebody was actively abused about their giftedness uh, or actively exploited, you can see this kind of rigidity that shows up in, in terms of controlling, like needing to control the situation, needing to always prove oneself, like this really intense um, kind of combative, you know, rebellion uh, then you can find that it, it's this more active thing. Like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to control you. I'm going to, um, you know, like the, 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 the client that I mentioned before, that's like, I'm going to show that therapist what a dummy she is by yeah. pointing out that she probably hasn't read all of these books, you know, this kind of that, that kind of more active um, antagonistic or condescending style Mm. Um, and th it's not, you know, always so clearly delineated, but that's how I can kind of start to see what's behind some of these behaviors. Um, it's a, f either way, it's a false sense of control, right? False sense of control, the need to control. And both have their own, like, corresponding att attachment issues, because the one is kind of like scared to attach. Um, and the other is also scared to attach, but kind of does it by a fight response. And this one kind of does it by uh, a flight response. Mm. more or less that's a very good but flight or people pleasing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah so like you said self-esteem uh imposter sin like chronic imposter syndrome mm. uh you know problems in the workplace like jumping from job to job now gifted people tend to jump from job to job anyway because of like curiosity and interest but jumping from job to job because you have like a lot of conflicts mm. um you know, interpersonal conflicts, that kind of thing. Um, mm. Really struggling to make friends or uh, having a lot why of friends. Why do you think it is so, I mean, it may sound like an obvious question, but why is it so hard for gifted people to find friends and a community? My God, that's hard. Just a place they feel hard. belonged and seen and not having to add it to themselves. Some people are lucky that they grow up in families that are yes. mostly gifted and they have like the people that they hang around and the, the social circles they're in are mostly gifted. So those people, I think, you know, I, I on occasion I meet them and they're like, you know, your work is lovely. I mean, I don't really need it, but thanks for what you're doing. You know, they don't need it because they already got it fulfilled by their family system. And that's how it should be in a way. 
But um, for most of us, or for a lot of us, it's not that way. And so when you think about the numbers, you know, there's somewhere like below 5% that's gifted, apparently, uh, according to the research. I mean, maybe it's, I think it's probably somewhere a little higher than that, but whatever. I think there's a lot of unidentified gifted people floating around the world, obviously. Um, So maybe the number's higher, but in any case, it's a very, very small percentage of the population. So there's a numbers game already. Um, And then you have the masking. So all of us who grew up sort of masking these different weird parts of ourselves, um, if I'm masking it, how is somebody going to recognize it in me? And how am I going to recognize it in them? So I'm always telling people, you know, if you're trying to connect better, you got to start unmasking some of those aspects of yourself, finding like healthy ways to express them. I can already hear a client asking how, how, how do I start doing that? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is, um, like I said, you know, naming the things in your own self, like going through the checklist of what makes a gifted person gifted and just acknowledging that that's your experience. Um, And then finding ways to just little by little start expressing that. So I've, I'm, you know, I kind of mentioned that one outcome of gifted trauma could be like just believing that nobody's going to listen to you anyway. Nobody's going to listen to your ideas. Um, So maybe you're masking because you're, you've got all these ideas, but you're just doing people pleasing behavior and, 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 and accepting, let's say at work, for example, you have all these ideas, but you're just keeping quiet because you know, nobody's listening. Nobody's going to listen to you anyway. That's what's in your head. Yes. And I think people are terribly afraid of judgment and being caught too much once again. That's really, yeah, right. Right. That's really hurtful. You're too much. You're too much. You're too much. Oh, I can't deal with you. Yeah. 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 And that's that. I mean, the masking serves a purpose. So it's like, it's one thing to say, yeah, okay. Like take off the mask, but I don't, it's not like take it all off in in one go because you're going to re-traumatize yourself. So it's like, Finding these little ways, you know? What are the little ways, what you say? Yeah. So maybe sharing an idea with one person that you identify as somewhat interested in some of your more complex ideas, Mm. not coming to work and going, okay, I've decided to unmask myself. Here are all my ideas, you know, because then of course you are going to be too much for the people and the system Mm. that you're in. So it is about diluting it, I mean, intentionally and consciously. I think it's about, I don't, I wouldn't call it, well... I wouldn't call it diluting. I'd call it like incremental, mm-hmm. incrementally sharing, Incremental. increasing contexts in which you're safe to share. Yeah. Like yeah. it may be a fact that you are not safe to share, for example, in your family, you're not safe to share mm-hmm. a lot of your ideas, but it doesn't mean you're never safe to share any idea. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other contexts where you won't be safe to share more ideas. Sure. I mean, the so words- it's like expanding the possibilities, you know? Hmm. The word safe is an interesting one because sometimes I challenge that. I sometimes say to people, well, you're grown up now. I mean, obviously after yeah. we have a relationship and work for a while, you're grown up now and actually no one can make you unsafe. No one can actually reject you unless you let them. Like I understand it's hurtful when someone just shut down, but if we don't go around needing their approval and recognition or even needing them to understand I understand it's easier said than done. But if we can do that, then we can just be ourselves and we go, well, this is me. You can take it or leave it. And what do you think of that? Or oh, is that too too stoic? No, it's a wonderful... I think if somebody is really in a relatively safe situation, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. There mm-hmm. are people who still are as adults in abusive situations or in like really restrictive situations. 
um, then for them, it's not as simple as just making a decision in their head and then doing it differently. You know, that like stoicism works when there's a pretty stable situation around, but if you're being actively abused, then yeah, it's not, no, it's not possible. And I always just make that distinction because I've met so many people over the years who are in active abuse and trying to tell themselves, well, just keep trying. And it's like, no, but if you have a person who's actively abusing you, it doesn't matter how many times you're going to just try to. You oh, know, no, no, no. That's, that would be a different yourself. matter. No, you yeah, know, that's, no, yeah. I think it's people should learn to shut doors and say, no, I'm not surrounding myself with these bad people anymore. I'm just thinking yeah. in a more general social situation yeah. where you can kind of just come out as this intense, geeky, yeah, uh, you know, fast-talking, impatient, feisty person, opinionated person that you are, <laughs> and let people judge if they have to. I'm thinking about something very kind of general, like if you go to a social meetup, a party, for example, just just be you and be blah 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 and talk about a subject that you're interested in. Be honest about your obsessions. Be weird. Yeah. And some people would be attracted to that. And most yeah, totally. people may not. And I, I want my point being that's okay. Like those people who you think of as rejecting you, they're not really rejecting you. You're just not the brand of cereal for them. Right? You're this yeah, high-end, low-carb, expensive thing on the top of the shelf. And when people don't pick you, it's not that they're rejecting you. It's just that, well, they prefer something else. Something else is a better fit. That's all. I'm really curious about the generational question on this, because I think, you know, um, those of us who have been adults for a while uh, grew up in, in a time that it was like neuro, the word neurodivergence didn't exist. If you were, for example, autistic or had ADHD or something, something was really wrong with you. Um, and now, I mean, neurodivergence exists and being kind of quirky and, 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 like not fitting in stereotypes and stuff is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. So I, I really see kind of a difference in, in the generations where my generation is like, Oh my God, I can't like seem different. I'm going to be like a total weirdo. And uh, younger generations are like, yay, embrace your weirdo, embrace your inner weirdo and like, let your light shine, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's something I think that our, us older, you know, not ancient, but that us older generations can, can take from from the younger crowd right now um it's just like like fly your weird flag and and enjoy being that and that's how you find each other like if you're masking that weirdness like then you don't you, exactly. you could be two people at yeah. that party that you're talking about and you have like you both you both fly the weird flag or whatever you want to call it but um but you're hiding it and exactly it exactly my and point either one of you knows yeah, That's exactly. right. You need to let your natural weirdness come out and let it be a filter. Let it screen out people and let people come in. But that's an interesting tangent where I recently, just literally last week, released an article on the trauma of being a second generation immigrant, where your parents are from somewhere else. And it's partly cultural gap, a cultural intellectual gap, but it's also a generational gap where they just have no understanding of things like mental health, diversity, queer theories. That could make, I think, gifted trauma worse because also there's a compounded guilt element, isn't it? Like they sacrifice so much. I think it doesn't just apply to immigrants, but it kind of brings it to the next level when you have that baggage of Sorry, I'm just going on a tangent, but you know, the, the extra baggage of, oh my God, stress, stress, mm, 
uh, having to balance two cultures, feeling guilty for being you, feeling guilty for having good things, feeling guilty for in- being intelligent and well-traveled and critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I'm getting at. I'm just, <laughs> just thinking about that and it resonates. Mm. Well, I like that you bring it up because it, it it does highlight in a very specific way all the different like intersectionalities of our, our person and mm-hmm. um, how all of those play in. Like if you have gifted trauma, it's not just like, oh, you have your gifted self over there. And once you like heal that, then everything's going to be fine. It's like that per- like permeates everything, all of the all of the other identities and they all have to like learn how to be a nice family and work together internally um, to make you have a a nice dignified life. Um, That doesn't mean a perfect life, but a dignified life. And um, I, you know, I work with a lot of people who are are like third culture kids. I myself am an expat. There's a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of these things that um, like we, you mentioned gender, um, culture can be linked like language it can be all of these different things that fit together with uh with who we are as a gifted person and all of those individual things and if there's trauma related to any of those individual things they all relate to the gifted trauma as well so like i mean just to say that's why a lot of people like to work with somebody on these things because it's it can be hard to map all of that out, especially if those things are triggering us as we're starting to map them out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things we can each do in our own life. Like we're talking about these incremental things, like taking a more stoic position, letting our, our, our weird flag fly or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And at the same time, structurally, it can be very nice to have support going through that process and naming these things. Mm-hmm. You know, naming these things with somebody else and mapping them out and going, okay, how, how do I get the inner family back together from its fragmentation? Mm-hmm. And how do I weave these, all of these different elements of myself together, back together mm-hmm. um, in a way that feels dignified for me? And that would be the last piece that I really want to talk to you about. How do we heal? I mean, therapy could be some, coaching could be one. I mean, I, I I'll let you speak rather than jumping in. But I also wanted to talk about contextual safety, which is a concept that I have not seen apart from, from your work. Yeah, contextual safety. It's, um, I, I never <laughs> Three saw questions either. in one. Yeah, I don't know why nobody talks about contextual safety because they should. No, um, no there are certain traditions that talk about it in um maybe not not in such a direct way, but I like to name it because um, there's something for me in terms of, of resilience that is like only only really nameable when we when we see what a context, like what context is pulling us forward. And I think to some degree, this came maybe more from my um, like positive psychology orientation, the coaching orientation. I, I I always thought when I was working with people, you know, when I'm, when I've been working with um, coaches, I've always been thinking, what is the difference between running away from something uh, and running towards something? And when a lot of times we come to our issues thinking, okay, I have to run away from all of these problems. And then there's some indeterminate future situation where we're, we, we are well, or something is, is, is resolved and that's our future. And that doesn't really when you're in like the midst of a crisis, yeah, sure. That's the way it, you should work through it. And that's how therapy is usually oriented. What are the problems? How do we 
How do we start to untangle the problems? Then in coaching, it becomes more like we have to have a clear goal that we're going to. Um, it's not, a, we're not starting from the problems. We're starting from the goal. And then whatever obstacles are in the way of reaching that goal, then we address them as they come up. So at some point in our journey for he- from healing or, or in our journey to healing, um, yeah, it, it starts to switch over to this kind of forward thinking, what am I going toward? And that's a lot of what, you know, kind of gives me this idea of contexts provide possibilities because as you start creating different contexts for yourself, um, different healing possibilities arise, you know? So if you, for example, anybody who's listening, if you think, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm a little inspired from, from this talk between Amy and Jen, I'm going to start to show myself a little bit more just incrementally. I'm just going to try to let that weird flag fly a little bit. Then, um, uh, then you, you may start to notice that you have one or two other people around you that kind of resonate with some of these things that you've been keeping hidden inside or that you've held back. And, um, that just having two people or one person around that changes your context and it changes what's possible for you to name, identify, address, integrate. And every time you change your context like that, like your next goal changes your context a little bit. And when you have a couple friends, this is what happened to me in my twenties. I got a couple gifted friends and it it started to change the context of what was possible for me to heal. And then once I had those two and I kind of healed a bit more, then I was able to go out and go, yeah, I'm not like a defective person because this is what I had concluded. Like something is seriously wrong with me. I cannot fit in. I cannot fit in with the normal world. And I just don't know why, like no matter how hard I try to force myself, I like internally implode and something's wrong with me that I can't, everybody else can sustain it, but I can't. And, um, and so having those gifted friends was like, oh my God, okay, there's something common amongst us and there's nothing wrong. There's I'm not like defective. There's nothing wrong with me. It's just like that I have been in a context that doesn't really make much sense for who yes. I am. Yes. And so then I was able to dream differently. Like yes. I could start to create a different like internal context for myself in terms of what, what are my goals, you know, because that goal um, does create a context like backward and so it's, it's really not just really, really again the problems orientation it's really this this thing and, and it pulls you forward I, I mean i find if i wake up and i think you know how does how do my actions today um you know help me embody more of that goal and and move toward i mean i don't think it's totally like linear but you know move toward or, or become more of that goal person i have in my head um that creates a context for my day and for my actions. Right. And it allows me to heal through my, through my everyday resilience and my everyday actions in a way that a problems orientation can't, can't do. Cause that's just sort of kind of running away from the pain, which again is at some point very helpful, but then, then things switch. So, you know, if, if the, if listeners are like in the problems orientation at the moment, okay, that's totally fine. That's the context for healing. But keeping in mind that contexts change and grow. And as as we heal and as we develop and, and integrate more, uh, all of these different parts internally, the context continues to change. So even now, I'm like, um, 
I, I was just thinking of an article I wrote, like, I don't know how many years ago, but at least I would say six years ago or so about gifted trauma. And I said, I was like still working through it. And, um, and I was thinking this morning, yeah, like I'm still, I'm still working through it. And I, I, I just don't really see that it's going to end, but at the same time, the way that the context changes makes the working through it way more rich and, um, and pleasurable in a way. I mean, I know that might sound strange, but healing can be, you know, very pleasurable yeah. um, when it's reconnecting us with our wholeness. And healing with the whole is of pleasurable. I think, you know, that's something people really don't think about or say it like that but it could be oh absolutely i enjoy time with my own therapist so much oh yeah me too yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, because we're we're here to connect and a lot of what we um a lot a lot of what we're like healing is this disconnection and and the inability to attach uh in in safe ways and comfortable ways and so as we as we reconnect with that capacity you know, with time, I mean, it's so pleasurable. It's what, I think it's what we're here physically anyway. Yeah. Like it's what we should naturally be able to do if everything would go quote perfectly, even though that's not the way things, that's so not I, the reality. I already know the answer. <laughs> um, so healing is possible for the gifted person? Question mark? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, healing is always possible. Journey. Mm. It is, but and I think that it's important to understand that healing looks as diverse as every gifted person and every gifted person's story and resources, because sometimes people hold themselves then to this ideal of what what healed looks like, and I think, um, it's yeah, it's not some like I'm talking about you know healing goals and such, but it's a goal for yourself that that is as, as unique to you, you know, like as your fingerprint or whatever, like, or just your brain print or something. Um, it's, it's your own like particular journey. And I would, I would not have imagined that my healing would take me in the directions that it did. And still I'm constantly surprised by it. And I think, Oh, okay. This is new. It's, it is going to my general goal, but is in a, on a totally different path that I would never have predicted. So I think that's also really important. And when at some point in the healing process, I think a lot of people do come to that kind of um, that deep pleasure in their own journey, even though the journey still contains pain and struggle and, and and challenge. But I mean, I often liken it to raising children. Um, You know, we can really enjoy that even though we know that there are going to be struggles and there's going to be struggles throughout the entire lifespan of the relationship, but we can take, you know, complete pleasure in that role. Um, even as that, that, you know, that pain happens, um, cause there's so much joy in, in the connection and the relationship. So with ourselves, I think that's with our gifted selves. I think that's how it quote should be if, if we yes. can get it there. Yeah. Thank you for leaving us with such a positive life giving message towards the end um so final thing what quick tip or just some words you might say to someone who's sitting on the fence either someone who feel very lonely existentially lonely which is so common in gifted adults or someone who's just wondering "Mm, am i gifted i'm not sure yeah okay well for the existentially lonely i will tell you you're not alone 
Um, Where do I find my people then? Yeah, exactly. Welcome to our community. Yeah, <laughs> Come to Intergifted. Intergifted. Yeah, Intergifted's a great starting point. There are other ones out there as well, Mensa and um, many others, but uh, generally we're the ones that are really focused on self-development throughout the gifted lifespan. So, you know, we're a good place to start. Like then maybe adding others on later on, perhaps. But uh, but yeah, a lot of people find that, you know, intergifted's a really um, a really great place for them. So come join us. But that does point to sort of my tip, which is like, you have to be proactive. And, and you and I know this, of course, as, as therapists uh, and coaches, like you, you have to really invest a lot of time and energy and healing and connecting. Um, and yeah, you have to have that kind of willingness to to do it. One thing that we struggled with when we started the community was that people wanted the results of connecting without the proactivity of taking the taking the risk and going for it and so we had to do some education around how to really be proactive in connecting with your gifted self and with gifted other people you know so yeah the proactivity read a lot read books read books on giftedness uh, go to our uh, blog where we have tons of articles on giftedness or listen to the different podcasts out there that are about giftedness, you know, just start immersing yourself into it and, and be proactive and reach out then when you're ready. Um, and then, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that sort of answers both questions, but yes. the, the, to the second question. Yeah. Also assessments are, are really a strong starting point for somebody who's really ready to invest mm-hmm. in the, in their process. Like they're really ready to get started and invest. It's important for assessments that, um, yeah, people are in a pretty stable place. And because, you know, it's a learning, this is a whole learning thing. Mm. And in order to really learn, you know, you have to be in a receptive Mm. um, state of mind and state of being. And so it's important that, yeah, people are pretty stable when they, when they reach out for assessments, but then once they are, the, the assessment process is like a, it's a little bit like a turbo charge to the whole self-discovery and integration journey. Thank you. That was very, very thorough and informative. And thank you for coming out as you and creating something that is so unique. I've really learned a lot from our conversations and I hope others will too. Mm, Well, thanks again for inviting me and um, for the work that you're doing as well for the gifted population. We all appreciate you so much. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks uh, just for hosting the... the I literally the just referred someone to Intergifted today, so... Oh, nice. Yeah, we always refer people to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, upward and onward. Let's stay in touch and have a good new year. Thank you. You too. And thanks to every everybody who's listening and uh, uh, good wishes for the new year to everybody who's listening as well. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye for now. Bye. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. For more, please head to eggshelltherapy.com. There you will find more stories, articles and resources for people just like me and you. Bye now. Keep putting one foot in front.